Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 469, a very nice episode of Constructive Criticism. It's not the nicest you've ever had, but it's a pretty nice one. I'm joined by my co-host, a man who was promoted this week, Apestein? It's a long story, but basically, I've gone from being in training to be a manager of a branch of a bank. Then I was in training to be taking over for the manager of a bank when his kid is born to his wife's water broke on Saturday. And so now it's just me. All of it goes through me from now until the end of the year. So, And a man who, uh, that joke doesn't make any sense, and Mason Clark. <laughs> That's me, baby. I'm here. I'm gaming. I've, in the last two hours, decided that I'm going to the Apex gaming event this weekend, so I can't wait to go play that. That's going to be a bunch of fun. If you're there, make sure to say hi. You're not a bother. I get to game. Then next week, I'm in Durham, and I'm gaming too. So I, I'm just battling a bunch, taking a week off, going back to Columbus. It's whew, I'm all over the place now, Spencer. I'm, Mason, in, I'm, in, my, I'm I, in my gamer era. Mason, I have a fan on me. I've got yeah. – it is it is the first week under 100 degrees in a while in Utah. And, like, I'm so happy with my life. Like, my T-shirt is, like, one of those sports tees that, like – and you're wearing a hoodie. Yeah, we're in a Magic Brand hoodie, too. It looks dope and feels like, even for better. For those who don't know, Mason has his AC set at, what, 61? No, I have my AC set to 64. I'm an adult. All right. I don't know how that's different. Uh, you, How does your AC not freeze? I don't know. Might Wait, be a problem. Do you change the filter? Yeah, every now and again. But, like, I don't have it. It's all new. How is this your life? I want to live your charmed life where I get to set my AC to a literal refrigerator. Yum. All right. Do you leave your milk out, Mason? Uh, no, that'd be weird. I don't have milk. I'm, I'm, not, I'm a human, not a that cow. That would be weird. <laughs> I don't have milk. Uh, how do you cook? Uh, Abe. I'm, I'm, I'm not a cat. <laughs> I don't. Abe, always the previews of the show. We're not going to talk about whatever just happened, you had the wonderful ability to take the last week off uh, as you were transitioning into this awesome new part of your life. I'd love to hear whether it's magic, whether it's life, like how have you embraced the always improving mentality that this podcast tries to help others uh, with? My uh, always improving moment from the last uh, two weeks now, I, I was out last week, actually comes from something I alluded to like, I think four weeks ago now, talking about how I've kind of laid out a bit of a plan for myself in terms of where I'm like going to focus on improving. And like uh, part of this was giving myself some time away from playing a lot of magic after feeling pretty burnt out from the back to back kind of like rushes of doing RCs. And that has been for the last two weeks, just getting back into playing some magic. I really hadn't played anything at all since the RC. Uh, I was able to play like a team tournament, uh, like locally, Two weeks ago, played some mono green there. Got to learn some things about like the Boy Lotus matchup, which was out jamming in the streets. Uh, felt good to do that, you know, with the arena um, chaos draft back on or like now on for Magic 30 on arena. Uh, I've been doing a ton of those and it's been really fun. So, really just enjoying engaging with Magic again, making it like a big part of my time commitment before I get into anything really intentional about it. Just like being like, yo, these are things I like doing. This is what I enjoy uh, and doing that. So, I can, especially as I you know, talk about how a lot of this new responsibility on my plate, a lot of these things competing for the same time, um, you know, making the space for it where it's something that's going to be additive and not not additional work for me, but uh, something where I'm 
I'm, you know, remind myself, oh yeah, magic is kind of kind of the bomb. So yeah, that's that's been my last couple weeks. Mason, uh, what did you do to improve magic this week? So I get to finally talk about something. It's me improving a while ago. So at the beginning of the year, I was gone for January and for February. And that's because, as you see on the video podcast, I was out working at Wizards of the Coast on the Modern Horizon 3 set, which I'm very excited for. Um, but seriously, uh, I know I'm joking here. I, I blue screen or green screened in some of the art from uh, the MH3 announcement. But yeah, I got to go and actually work on the sets, much like Brad Nelson and BBD and Sam Black and Jerry Thompson in the past. I was one of those people to work on MH3. And I learned a lot of valuable lessons, some of which I can't quite talk about right now. But the biggest thing I learned while working there uh, and I wanted to be able to talk about was setting expectations for yourself. I had a lot of really hefty expectations on myself, right? I just mentioned the people who have previously worked on these sets, right? Brad Nelson, Jerry Thompson, BBD, right? Sam Black. These are some of the names that all of you know, and it's not a question. And on the team with me was, you know, Brad Nelson once again. And it's like, wow, these are really strong, heavy players. I, you know, I think I am quite good at magic. The difference between me and them is so large. I think it is hard to describe. And I put a lot of pressure on myself, especially at the beginning to make sure that I came in and like did good work and everything like that. And I think I did. But the, the bigger thing was realizing like, hey, just because those guys have done so much at Magic and done so well, I shouldn't be comparing myself to them, which is something I've learned in the past from Magic. And I should be focusing on what am I here to do? I'm here to do my goals for the set. And I'm here to you know help make part of Magic and be a part of Magic history and get to do this. And so it was a dream come true to get to do that. And it was a really great reminder of like, hey, I shouldn't compare myself to anyone else. I shouldn't judge myself by anyone else. I should just do the best I can. I was picked for this. And I was chosen for this. And like, you know, I, I should just trust myself that if I was picked for this and they think I can do it, that I can do it. And it doesn't matter if I'm not as good as Jerry or I'm not as good as Sam Black. It's cool. I can just get it done. So that was mine. And I'm really excited to talk to you two about it. When the MH set comes out, I'm really excited to see everyone. And I, I can't wait for the pick two set review episode with you two. I am uh, very, very excited. There were a lot of moments internally where I was like, ooh, I think Abe would like this, or ooh, Spencer might like this, or inversely. And uh, I'm excited for y'all to see it and have those conversations in just, you know, 10 months or whatever, 11 months. So, yeah, just to peel back the curtain a little bit, like, is what can people expect from the podcast from you over the next, like, few months as far as, like, what is Mason allowed to talk about? What is Mason not allowed to talk about? And, and this mm -hmm. isn't just for listeners, like, as the host of the show, like, I want to make sure that I'm not putting you in awkward positions. Like, what, how, do, mm -hmm. how do you think that, like, we talk about Assassin's Creed or we talk about Fallout? Like, uh, we talk mm -hmm. about the power level of different formats. H how does that impact you? Yeah, so I, I guess full, full clarity, I also worked on Assassin's Creed as well. So I, I worked on Modern Horizons 3. Uh, I worked on that set a lot, and I more consulted on uh, Assassin's Creed. And so really what it means is I'm not going to say anything about the sets. Um, if it's not public, I'm not going to talk about it. And when it comes to power level, when we get to the pick two set review, I'm just simply going to sit out of sleepers and hits. I'm going to let these two guys sort of take one of my picks each uh, and let them do their thing because I think that it wouldn't even be that big a deal if I said it, but I think there loses a lot of mystery and a lot of the excitement of that. And so, you know, I've had a year and some change at that point to work with the cards in my head and I think about them a lot. Um, and so I'm much more interested and not engaging in that way. But as cards come out, I am going to have conversations, you know, and if during previous, like to use uh, the light halfling as an example, right? Like that was um, 
a card we were all talking about, or whatever. And like, if that had been a Modern Horizons card uh, and it was brought up, Delighted Halfling, I would talk to y'all with about Delighted Halfling, but I probably wouldn't let you in on where I think it is power level wise. And then my plan is when the set is officially out for one day, I'm going to then sort of say, here's what I think are the strong cards. Because I think one day with the set, there's more games are played than I ever could. And it's just like, we're going to have a good idea on a lot of initial impressions. And so, well, I think my impressions are better than that. It's just like, I don't know. There's no real embargo on it. I just can't talk about things that aren't public knowledge. So, you know, it's going to be cool. It's going to be fun. I'm really excited. I wish they had shown a card, but that's life, baby. Spencer, what's your always improving moment? I'm like a really transparent person. So uh, this weekend, we were supposed to have our podcast meeting. I'm supposed to be posting a schedule for the podcast about like what the next two months look like on the show. And I... I had a really rough Saturday night uh, into Sunday morning where some some feelings came up where I I like to normalize this, but I want to give a trigger warning that like this, this is something that maybe you deal with a lot and like you don't want to hear about it. But like I was really struggling with suicidal thoughts this weekend. In in turn with that, I usually don't play my best magic when I'm sad. I was talking to Matt Kling about this this week where I'm really good at playing magic when I'm trying to prove a point to myself or to other people. Like, even if it's like people being mean to me or whatever, but I'm not really good at playing magic sad, but two of my best friends, coast of neat nerd. And then the owner of the store that, you know, we're, we're in conversations with the sponsor, uh, future, future types of giveaways and events and keep games. They wanted me to, uh, go to the Oasis games. Store championship with them, play modern. You know, I, I woke up that morning, I could not get out of bed, uh, and I, I let Gabe and Mason down, called my friend, and it was a really good conversation where I think that pretty often when you're in this type of mental space, you hear these stories of people like overcoming it and just like get out there and do it and like whatever and like it's so you know once you do that it's so easy and that that is actually not the experience i had and i want to be really transparent about the experience i had i didn't misplay in round two where i was one and oh where i my opponent had a mags of moon in play because of their noble hierarch in their yog deck where i just registered it as a blood moon and minus my karn to get a haywire might instead of the pirate spell bomb that was in my board specifically for this situation. And I went on to lose that match in game three of that exact situation. And then in game game three of round four, uh, playing for top four of this store championship, I had another moment where I overthought things and tried to double spell because I got too greedy rather than just playing an oblivion stone and cracking it. And I got got by a protection spell out of hammer. And What's so interesting to this is that I'm really happy with myself for leaving the house, for bringing myself into a position where I got to have fun and use magic as an escape, even though, as usual, I did not play well when I was sad. And I think that my always improving moment here is taking opportunities to have opportunities even when you're not going to play your best. And too often when you get to the point where I think that I and many of our listeners and you guys are out of magic, it would be easier to just not play magic because I knew I wasn't going to play my best. 
But what happened is I put myself in a situation where I was able to be with friends. I was able to think about my Tron list that I'm going to have to play this one gig because there were no bands today, especially considering like I'm going to have to share sagas. So I'm going to play sagas on my Tron list. Like there was a lot of learning opportunities there that even though I didn't play my best, I know exactly where I misplayed. Both of them, I would have, I would have just forrowed and like, you know, been in top four and whatever. It, it doesn't matter. It's a store championship. I still got the promos and stuff, but I don't know. It, it was, it was an interesting thing to like play through the darkness. Whereas I don't think I would do that normally. You know, obviously I, I personally really appreciate the transparency. I know that that's something that is really important to, to you to have on the podcast of what, um, you know, just being a place we can talk about what it is. We're going through always improving through all that. There's something that even outside of like, you know, as drastic as maybe what you you were feeling what you were going through on the weekend. First, I want to say that, you know, for all the listeners concerned that we didn't have our meeting, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be fine. There's going to be an episode next week. We're still going to be okay. But also that my, uh, you know, something that I've, I forget where I read it in like a book, I think called Elements of Poker. But the the player who wrote that book, he talked a lot about like your A game and like your B game and your C game. As like when you're playing your best, that's your A game, right? When you're like really on your B game is kind of when you're just playing your well, your average, and your C game is when you're right, like playing some of your worst. And he talked about in terms of like, you know, if you're playing, if you're a cash poker player trying to play for a living, it's important to understand, you know, what is your strength? Is your strength that you have a really high floor on your C game? Is it that you have a really high floor on your A or a high ceiling on your A game? And, you know, it sounds to me like, Spencer, you're really engaging with this area of what your C game is and being in the space of being able to engage and being willing to play, you know, because there's going to be, there's times in, in everyone's magic where you got to play, you know, sometimes your day two, you wake up, you feel really bad, you know, something's going on in your personal life, the same weekend as your as the Grand Prix, you know, like all these things have happened to, I think, all of us, where there, there's things outside of the magic tournament that are, that are affecting you and getting chances to engage with that, I think, is really um, important if you want to be, you know, a successful tournament player to balance right both your existence as a human being and also your existence as a as a magic player so i just want to say kudos to you for um you know engaging with that and putting that that out there and really lifting up uh or or putting a little bit of work with your c game and identifying you know maybe next time if you're playing in a state where it's it's hard for you you can say i need to take the extra time on even the small decisions right like my card minus let me just double check the board and look at it and be like okay because because you know right if you're cognizant you're going to be playing you know, a little worse, you're a little more distracted. Taking that time for yourself could help. And, uh, yeah. So. It's actually really funny because I thought about grabbing the pirate spell bomb. I was like, well, I don't have red mana. Like, my brain was clearly off. Yeah. It was just was like, it was clearly off. And then I was like, then I made the decision. And then I was like, well, I don't even have the green mana. Like, I have I actually had two force in play. I, was like, I don't even have the mana to pop this to hit the blood moon. Also, and he's got the, he's got the Yagan play. So, like, he'll just kill this after I already made the decision and then I, it passes back to my next turn. I look at this haywire mark in my hand and I was like, Oh my gosh. One, I had the red mana and two, like, yeah. Oh, so bad. Two, that's a creature. Two, it's a creature. It's not, it's not a blood moon. Three, it's not an artifact or enchantment. <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. It's so bad. And what's so funny is, like, this player actually popped off when they beat me. It's actually their second time beating me. We played, like, 
six or seven times I've beaten them in like I, they're actually the yacht player that I beat to qualify for the RC in San Diego. Um, actually, this was going to be something I want to talk about on the podcast. So I'm actually glad that we got here. Where I I outplayed them a lot to qualify for San Diego, and when they beat me, they popped off and they like got really upset at themselves. This is just my personal opinion. If you're playing against me and you draw a one outer or a two outer and you like have played really well or you like you made a mistake and you've overcome that, feel free to pop off. I think we take magic too seriously. I think that it is okay to show emotion. And this player got really upset with themselves for showing that emotion. And I like told them, I was like, dude, you did not upset me. I also probably would have felt what you felt and would have wanted to do what you did. You do not need to feel bad. And I think that we as Magic players need to take this game less seriously and allow ourselves to, to show that. Or just grow up. And if someone beats you, it's like, Cool. Then they yes. popped off and they were excited. Yes. If I was playing the finals of the Pro Tour and Abe moles to one and I run him over, do you know what I'm doing after I beat Abe? I'm popping off in Abe's face, you know? Yeah, I, Get wrecked, kid. I, I, <laughs> Listen, I grew up playing Little League. Handshake your game. That's yeah. all it is. Well, what's so funny is, like, I, I, like, shook his hand. He got upset. I was like, dude, you do not be upset. Like, I was going to give him the fist bump. I just, I think that, like, he was so upset of himself because he, like, drew the court of calling that he needed to win the game. On his last draw, because he was at one, one to two, two, going to one. And I was like, dude, you do not need to be upset with yourself. Like, just embrace it. Like, this is the highs of magic. This is the moments we live for. And I, I just, I hope that, like, you know, and maybe it was me being in that darkness, right? Like, me being in this, like, I wanted one of those moments that day. And the fact that he got it actually gave me, like, like a little bit of lifeblood. So, well, that's going to do it for... This, however, we have one thing to talk about before we bring into uh, our guest, which if you don't look at the title of the episode, we didn't answer before, but Dom Harvey's joining the show in just a second. I want to talk about the BNR announcement. And last week, Mason, you put me on a trajectory where I doubted my own sanity because they said what I thought they were going to say today. It's not your fault. I'm just teasing you. Where like, I thought that there would be no bans. I was like, there's no reason to ban anything. You're like, no, Spencer, there's only one ban a year. And I was like, oh, that changes. There everything. is. That until <laughs> today when they announced that the older formats would be under consideration for every three months. Well, yeah. Well, they have emergency ban windows is what they call it, which I told you about last week. Yeah, but it sounded like that was for like standard cards. No. No, no, they're not banning standard cards forever. Standard forever, no bans. No bans. But I'm actually curious. So today it was announced we have an unban of Preordain in Modern and an unban of Mind's Desire and Legacy. Uh, I'll go first. Who Megalol? What? I said who Megalol when you said Legacy. Like, Uh, like what's (laughs) W H Omegalol? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll go first. I totally expected unbans as this this seemed like a really good time for it. Uh, I really loved Mason's stream. We talked about it last week on the show. Mason goes over stuff. I thought that Green Sun Zenith and Splinter Twin might be getting unbanned. Like that is where my head was at. Only because they and and the reason I didn't consider Preordain or Ponder was because of how 
direct they've been with cantrip printings in the last X years. Like, it seems so prescriptive that they had just decided these cards. We actually had a whole thread in our Patreon Discord about, like, what is the proper power level for a cantrip in modern? Because to me, it is preordained. Like, that is actually it. So we see that today. I've already had discussions with teammates. I've already had some thoughts around this. Uh, Jess had a really good tweet where she talked about how it's really good for Breach. I totally agree with that. Um, Follow-up. Do you want the follow-up from that one? Yeah. Did you see it? it. She said it was awful after playing with it. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Nice. Uh, I'm not on Twitter, so, like, I only see the stuff from the CC account, like, while I'm Mm -hmm. refreshing. But but Pyrenean is, like, in this interesting spot where... One, Orcus Bowmaster exists. Like, we're, we're now in Orcus Bowmaster's world, and Preordain looks really bad there. But if it is... Dom's enjoying the show. He'll talk a little bit about this. But, like, if you're comboing off, it seems really good. If you're doing it turn one, it seems really good. My first thought when I saw it was like, oh, man, this makes Ledger Shredder so better. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, Ledger Shredder's unplayable. Why did I just think that? Abe, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my thoughts on Paradine, I I wasn't here last week, but I did have some thoughts on Modern that I was sharing with Mason when we were catching up um, after the episode because I just listened to it. And I think something that really important to understand about the Modern format right now, and especially over the last, I want to say honestly, like the last year since, since Modern Horizons 2, is that, at least to me, the format has existed in this balance, like the pitch elementals actually and the card economy involved being the most important thing in the format. So like before Lord of the Rings and before the One Ring, it was really that, you know, there was kind of this balance of, well, if you want to get up on cards enough to recoup the loss of having to two for one yourself on your opponent's stuff, you need to be finding a way to do that, right? Like Risen Reef, um, Yorion plus like cantrip things, like that was a, a big pattern of it. And Renin Six the only way to get up on actual cards. Prudane doesn't actually change anything about that. Um, the One Ring really changed everything about that, where now there's a card that just single, singularly recoups all of the actual cardboard invested into the game, and has really changed the, the rules of engagement of the format. I really don't... I, like, I think Prudane feels kind of safe, because the format's just not about those things, and kind of the fall of Murktide shows that as well, where Murktide is a deck where it's really good at being very efficient and having a lot of the good wonderful exchanges and then having something that was overcoming the, uh, the like interactions and expressive iteration was enough card advantage to get ahead. I just want but, to call out that, that I think that didn't Mark I win both challenges this weekend. I'm not familiar with challenges also this weekend. Yeah. I, I almost wonder if it, hang on, we should maybe pause something with this. I wonder if this is a moment that we had talked about like last week, Spencer, where at the end of what Abe says, you should maybe tell, say okay, that that makes yeah, sense. That's, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think really where we see like the fall of Murktide over the PT is that like the format is so defined by these decks that are like generating a lot of card advantage and Murktide previously was had the best ways to get a little bit ahead, right? An expressive iteration, um, or I guess the blue black versions having Sauron's Ransom, like just taking the one for ones really well and then getting ahead just a little bit. And the format's gotten less about that, and Puridane is actually really good for decks that are trying to do exactly that or set up something unfair right the card selection i I think it's actually pretty similar to serum visions in terms of what it does for the unfair decks 
unless you're trying to go off on that turn, looking for a specific card can be different, but there's a lot less of that in the combo decks currently in the format. But overall, I don't think this changes a ton about the rules of engagement of the format. I think it's going to be a card that's going to make a lot of decks play just a little bit smoother. I think it's going to make like the Delirium things with uh, Dragon Ridge Channeler just a little bit smoother because now your sorcery is a little bit better. Um, but overall, you know, I just wanted to, to kind of take a minute to talk about that in terms of what what I felt was kind of going on in modern. So I got a chance to share that last week, as well as kind of how Preordain fits into that. And so we'll see, you know, how that how that really changes things. But I think that's kind I of think my... is like a really interesting place, Abe, because if you listen to last week's show, uh, Mason and I talked about Lorian revealed, or is that the name of the card? We'll, we'll, yeah, as like this, it's it's like another cantrip for the deck that is also a pitch card. That is also a, it fills a lot of roles, right? And I think that Preordain has a lot to compete with. One of the things that was said in our Discord is like, oh, this just feels better than Consider, like, as a card. And one of the things that I said, I think, Mason, that you agreed with is like, yes, Preordain is a better card than Consider. That does not mean that all of your decks that want a cantrip want Preordain over Consider. I think Murktide is actually the perfect example of a deck that actually probably wants consider over preordain, even though you want the sorcery, there are other ways to get sorceries in your yard, like Lorian's Revealed or Reveled or whatever it is, is a really good way to like you can play two or three of those, play some subtleties in your main, maybe even play some force navigations, depending on how the format plays out. You have these really good pitch cards that also are a cycler or a cantrip that like kind of fit your narrative a little bit better. I have a lot of thoughts on the preordain unban, but the, the biggest one comes to people being like, I'm going to cut four considers from my deck and put four of these in and for Murktide, and that's going to fix my Murktide deck. And it's like, you're a counterspell deck that really wants to leverage having the right spells at the right time that also uses DRC Heat, Unholy Heat, and Murktide. And so the fact that it puts cards to the yard really matters. And I think that like, you know, we saw players like Alan Wu play, I think it was two Serum Visions from Arcade the Pro Tour. And like, you know, doing something like that where your flex slots are these Serum, I'm sorry, these Preordains or, you know, Lorraine's Reveal and all these different, there's a lot of different ways you can move things. But like, that is like a reasonable direction to go. But a thing that I keep telling people when they ask me about Murktide with Preordain is like, well, yeah, traditionally, you know, Jun decks all played cantrips or whatever, right? Your one-for-one deck doesn't really want to play too much of cards that are just about finding the right card. And that's what Preordain is about. Preordain is about setting up to find the card you want. So that's why it's stronger, in theory, in a deck like Underworld Breach, uh, sorry, Breach Combo, where it actually is working towards winning the game. And it's not working towards, like, finding the counter spell to fight the fight. Playing Sorcery Speed and not getting to react, not enabling your synergies is a really big drawback. And, you know, I, I do think that Modern is really hostile right now. To combo decks like force negation ragavan uh spell pierce counterspell thought seize grief those cards all make it really hard to be a combo deck and to be having about a specific card at a specific point so this unban is really good because we know traditionally that decks that are about card advantage don't love to have preordain and the consider graveyard like interaction makes it so like there's some thought to it in modern and it's not just one-to-one so in a lot of ways, I think this unban is just one of those situations where it's like we live in a different world and there are some things that we can take off. And this is a way to sort of try and help combo decks and really, you know, take someone who's playing their combo deck and give them that extra 1% win rate. 
and open up some new rooms. So I'm really excited to see like Twiddle Storm, Belcher, Oops All Spells, those sort of decks. Um, I do think the Logic Run and Breach is high on my list for this card, by the way. That was yeah, like, I mean, really high. Yeah, the, the problem traditionally is those decks can't beat Murktide, Grief type, or uh, like Ragavan decks with, with interaction. That is yeah. the problem. But we'll see, like, maybe Preordain lets you, you know, get a little bit more consistent in the format. Changes enough because of the One Ring, where, like, there can be space for them. So I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, I think it makes sense and stuff, but, you know. I think, I think it's just Bowmaster laughs at this up, man, for what it's worth. Like, if you're ever going to try to do a fair deck doing this thing, like, for example, I, there was a joke in our Discord about, like, blue-white, for example, and how, like, maybe blue-white, because they're like, oh, just unbanned Stoneforge Biscuit and Jason Mind Sculptor. And, like, Stoneforge Jason Mind Sculptor Reordained, like, is a real package that, like, was legacy playable for a hot minute. And maybe maybe it was Ponder and Brainstorm, not Reordained, but... Uh, yeah, it was Ponder and Brainstorm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but my point, my point <laughs> is that the the idea of doing something like that i don't think it works mm-hmm. anymore like that's not the the fair preordained games preordained was a cursor because you didn't have something to do with your mana and using your mana was important right mm-hmm. and it's just so hard to not build a deck where you have something to do with your mana whether it's lightning bolt whether it's spell pairs whether it's the new uh one mana counter creature thing like there are just so many things to do with your man now. I think that it's a really safe on man. Also, I, I really think we talked about it last week. You know, we had the little Twitter Twitch clip too, whatever that was like formats about the one ring and Orcus Bowmaster. Orcus Bowmaster is really like that one friend in college whose other friend became a big star and is now like riding their coattails. My card is good, but it is not like if the one ring wasn't in the format, we would not see as much Bowmaster as we do now, or at least not like. Oh, it's clearly Bowmaster you should play. So I, I'm really interested to see sort of how things go and how they evolve. But yeah, it was interesting. And it's probably time we get talking to Dom. And we're joined by Pro Tour Topic competitor, Dom Harvey, host, co-host, creator of Dominary's Judgment, the the king of Amulet Titan. How's it going, Dom? It's going good. I like hearing that uh, Pro Tour Topic competitor part. Nice uh, new label in there. Not going to get tired of hearing that one anytime soon so uh anyone who encounters me feel free to repeat that you know any context you like you know well, pro tour top eight competitor dom harvey thank you so much for joining us on the show we were there really we glad to have you yeah <laughs> as a pro tour top eight competitor with 61 cards main uh you know it's you're you're in unique special company yeah a big, bigger number better as i believe uh certain co-hosts have been known to say mm-hmm. yeah they they do say that they, they do say you- that You've definitely now become uh, one of the people to top eight Pro Tours with the most cards. Uh, you know, you've really yes. leapfrogged an entire category of players who've top eight of the Pro Tour before um, in terms of number oh, yeah. of cards they've, they've yeah, had. I'm already, I'm already in like that 99th percentile now just by virtue of that. And I'm there with like Nassif and then also just random people from 1994 before any of us knew how to build decks properly. So... For, for my next trick, you know, 62 cards, that's going to really uh, get get me in that upper tier. What's really great about it is, like, anybody who correctly, like, played, like, like 43 or, like, 40x cards in their, their you know, um, their limited deck, you still just outpace them dramatically on averages of number of cards for Pro Tour decks because you didn't construct it. Well, yeah, I, I'm leaving all of those limited pools behind in the dust. You know, they they, they really can't compete. 
for those who don't know, I, we kind of introduced you as the, the the Titan guy, the you know the, this top eight competitor. But who who is Dom Harvey for the listeners? Like who is this person that we've invited on the show after just such an amazing finish? Well, well that's a, a very deep question. So I guess foothold in competitive magic would really begin with a lot of the SEG stuff in 2019. Uh, won an open with Amulet there, and then became known as one of the Amulet guys, you know, from from Canada who would come down from the north and and do their thing. Managed to broaden my range a bit over the years following that, but now I'm really back in one-trick territory, uh, I suppose. But have broadened my range in other ways. So uh, podcaster, as you said, commentator, coach, I uh, like to kind of dabble in various aspects of magic. Uh, still write weekly for SEG and then blog occasionally uh, when when the fancy uh, takes me. So I, I don't know, just love playing magic, love talking about magic, thinking about it, and take chances to do that whenever they uh, whenever they crop up. Is there things about you? You mentioned your SEG beginnings. Is there things about Amulet in the SEG tour that kind of brought you to the forefront? Like, what, was there a thing about Amulet at that time that really spoke to Dom specifically? By that point, I'd already been playing it for a few years, and it was just a, a default deck that I loved and would take any chance to play. Uh, there was other stuff. Uh, you know, I was a KCI main for a while and uh, would, would jump around between a few different things. But yeah, I mean, I, I qualified for my first PT with. Amulet Bloom back when the Bloom part was was still around, and ever since I started learning the deck, like I was not good at it at first. It took me a long time, like it does for a lot of other people. But recognize that, oh yeah, this is something I I know I'm going to love once I finally get over that initial hurdle. And sure enough, you know, eight years later, here we are. So you talked about kind of your first your first pro tour uh, there. How does kind of qualifying for your first PT with Summer Bloom? Uh, and then having that encapsulated in your last pro tour, how does that story like evolve? How does how does that make up Dumb Harvey? Well, it's a great story arc, and I'd be lying if that romantic aspects, I guess, didn't play into my deck choice here to some extent. Uh, like I, I did sincerely try a bunch of other decks and was waffling between Amulet and Tron and a few other decks up until uh, the eleventh hour, but just the fact that I had that sheer quantity of experience with the deck. And then also, it felt like a fitting homage. You know, I, I'd been playing the deck for so long. Usually, if I had some kind of high-stakes tournament, I, that would be my go-to. And if I didn't play it, I would regret it. And so the fact that on this biggest stage now, I would actually get to like play my baby in a format that was seen as being like pretty hostile to it and the deck had fallen off the map, like I, there, there was something romantic about that, even if you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that choice to others. Yeah, I actually really love that you top-aided because... I think you mentioned this on your podcast as well, but it's something about like modern has always had someone in the top eight or it's been a format where it's like, hey, if you're really good with your deck, even if your deck is maybe a tier two or like not the best choice in the world, you can succeed if you're a master with it. And you are sort of that person, you know, unless some of those other players are that for Rhinos or Tron, I just didn't know it. But, you know, though you were that person, this top eight, where it's like, hey, I play Amulet all the time. I've dedicated thousands of hours you know writing a guide let alone learning the deck you know so like i i am here ready to go and sort of shown that like hey this can overcome you know being not the most optimal choice quote unquote i'm glad that person was me of course but i think it's important to have someone in that role whether it's john guy or or whoever just uh, i think especially at the lower levels of modern so lgs rcq kind of level you need to have that kind of continuity there where if it is all just MH2 cards, now Lord of the Rings cards, and next year is going to be MH3 cards and so on, then you, you want there to be something you can kind of like hold on to for stability. And so the idea that, yeah, you can just 
play the deck that you love and you, know, you, you update it for the new foes that you're going to face and you switch a few cards around, but you can still compete even if it's not a great choice. I think that's pretty essential for modern having that grassroots support and being a, a popular competitive format. So it's nice to have some of that represented at the virtual level and even nicer that it's me, of course. I got to ask you, you mentioned like there being that guy. What do you think has helped make you become that guy? Like, what are the things that helped you level up in Magic through RCQs, through PTQs, through, you know, SCGs? Like, what what is the thing that you've learned the most through your Magic journey to help you improve the game? I think that's that's tough because, and, you know, Mason and Abe, you can speak to this too, but I think as coaches in particular, like, one thing that a lot of students will be looking for, or as a coach that you want them to kind of have and credit to you is you want them to have some kind of epiphany, like, like some level up moment, right? And there's a lot of content like this, which when they talk to players who have just had some success, they'll ask, well, what's your level up moment, right? What's the, the 15 second soundbite for what you can take away to improve? And I think often the lessons that you learn like are a lot less linear than that. And they can't really be distilled down into some before and after. So honestly, the the way I improved, you know, on the SCG tour, for example, is just I, I just played all the SCGs. Um, and so that came about because I spiked events early, maybe before my own abilities or my assessment of them would be in line with that. And so that now gave me incentive to just keep playing more of them. And as a result, I just got that experience playing that kind of event over and over again. And I think that that's true for whatever level. So at the RCQs, right, the best, I think one of the best ways to practice RCQs is just to practice RCQs. So I like go to as many as you can, and you're going to take your losses, but hopefully learn from those and so on and so forth. And you go from maybe going three and two a lot, four and two a lot, to like top eighting a lot, and then hopefully to converting and then and so on and so forth. But the best way is just to keep practicing at the level that you want to be at, which can be easier said than done, right? Like not every area has a bunch of RCQs you can go to every weekend. And then that also doesn't scale well. So how many chances of the Pro Tour are you going to have? If it's your first Pro Tour, then how do you prepare for that? Given that this is the highest stakes event you're going to play. And now I have I have Worlds in six weeks. And I, I, I've never played an event like Worlds before and may never do so again. But I've got to somehow find some framework for approaching that that makes sense, even though I can't really extrapolate from any of the previous tournaments i played before so I, I think that's just one of the perpetual challenges but yeah i mean the the boring answer is just play a lot of those tournaments if you can and then see where that takes you well i i actually think this goes into something that i was talking about with um some teammates this week it, and it, it's a little bit more simplified the way that we were talking about it than the way that you were but like learning to appreciate your plateaus and where where you're at and assessing where you're at rather than viewing that as a down or like a like viewing it as a, a a bad thing, right? Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about like, okay, I'm in the SCG tour. I'm playing all these SCGs. Currently, this is my common record at an SCG. Rather than, you know, looking at it as how can I be better? It's like, here's where I'm at. What can I do from here? It's kind of how you both approached both that, your comment about your first time pro tour and your first time worlds. So one thing that makes it tough to know where you're at and know what to take away from that is you could think of it as like you have like four lines on a graph or something like those. I uh, don't know what you call them, but like those heart takers or something at a hospital where so you've got like your 
your talent or your skill, where where it's at right now. You've got your results. You've got how you see yourself and where you're at, and then how other people see you and where you're at. And I think psychologically, it's pretty difficult whenever two of those things become decoupled too far. So we'll have seen those people, right, who they spike a tournament, and now their assessment of themselves is all the way up here, but their talent is still kind of lagging behind. But then their result that got them there is all the way up here. But then the way other people see them isn't isn't in line with how they see themselves. And so actually getting all of that back and roughly the same trajectory can be pretty difficult sometimes. And just the nature of that is your results are not going to line up with how well you are improving or how well you think you're improving because uh, necessarily these are just like random points or spikes on the graph, whereas your ability is just a, hopefully a line that's like gradually going up and maybe you have some of those epiphanies and there's a sudden spike there. But uh, for the most part, your results when when you have your breakthrough finish or whatever is going to come as something of a surprise, probably because there's no way to like schedule it, right? Like e- even if you think you're at the level where you could be doing that, then you're not going to convert every time. I, I saw and played against a lot of people who took longer to get to their first PT top eight or whatever than, than I have done now. They were better players than me before and, and still are. And I don't think I am that much different than I was two weeks ago, but uh, the scoreboard is going to say something different, right? So uh, I think just trying to keep those in some level of balance mentally is pretty important, even though you, there's going to be a lot of pressure to uh, like zig or zag in some other direction. Yeah, I, I think to like what you just said there about like realizing what level you're at, I think often people find themselves in a spot where they're already sort of in the level and they don't really realize when they're crossing the line as you described it, right? Where like you sort of enter that next one and you look back and you go, wow, I know so much more now or I understand so much more now or I'm so much better at something now than I was two years ago. And I don't even know when it clicked or whatever, you know? It just sort of happened. And that is something that is sometimes frustrating, I think, for people because people want to know and they want to track the improvement. But so much of it is, like you mentioned, sort of just keep going and rolling with the punches. I actually saw you reply to someone on Twitter the other day, Don, with something along the lines of like, so much of magic is just like pushing yourself and handling situations like this when something went bad for somebody. And I I think that is a lot of it where it's like, like you mentioned, you have to play these events, you have to shoot these shots, you have to try. Technically, yes, some people, Jake Beardsley, they spike the first pro tour or whatever. But how many PTQs did Jake lose right to get there, right? Just because he spiked one thing, doesn't mean he spiked everything. And even if he does, it, it doesn't correlate like that, right? So I, I think it is really important just to keep all of that in perspective and I, sort of like remember it's a marathon. I also think that just to like add to both what both of you just said, it goes back to your previous point, Don, where, you know, I know that there are times in coaching where I've coached people where I've said, like, you you are good enough for the goal that you're trying to achieve. And it's about putting yourself in this situation enough times now that you have to put yourself in that situation. And it's about replicating results in order to get into the situations you want to get to, whether that's winning your RCQ or whether that's qualifying for the Pro Tour. Now it's about consistency and building consistent results. And I, I don't know, I just, I really appreciate your perspective on that. The other thing too is whether it's a long sample in terms of just playing a ton of tournaments or a long tournament like the PT, where it's 16 rounds over two days. Like it's the, the PT in particular is is really a marathon, not a sprint. And so even if you start playing your A game, you're gonna lapse in that at some point. You're gonna make mistakes, you're gonna feel exhausted by the end of the day, especially if 
ideally you're playing two four days of competition you're in contention playing high stakes matches towards the end you're you're kind of playing the most important matches of your career at the point where maybe physically psychologically you're not as well equipped to handle those and you're probably going to mess up uh, at some point and so how you respond to that is as big a determinant of success as anything else really because better players than me or you have messed up in those spots before and will do again hall of famers you know people with very distinguished careers and so you kind of have to be ready for the fact that if you give yourself enough chances you're going to miss some of those and you're going to miss because of your own mistakes and like if that's going to devastate you psychologically you need to have some method for processing that in advance because i mean i'm still haunted by some stupid mistakes i've made in matches you know years and years ago but if you know you're the kind of person who's going to be reliving that stuff then you need to either find a way to handle that in advance or find some way to as a matter of urgency handle that after the fact because like you can't just be dwelling on that for the rest of your life it's just you've signed up for an experience where your own limits are being tested and like you're you're not perfect right you're not stockfish or whatever like you are going to make mistakes and so how you respond to that and rebound from that especially in the moment like this this bt i, I started off o2 i definitely made mistakes in drafting deck building gameplay that maybe would not have corrected that but at least would have made me feel better about the fact that i was going o2 and then you know staring the abyss in the face there and then on day two you know, I have my feature match where like if I mess up, well, now I'm out of contention, but also I've just messed up on camera in front of thousands of people, right? Which that's going to affect people in different ways. And then, you know, during the the final stretch there, and then also in my, my quarterfinal match against Javier, I thought I really messed up that game three. So as I lose game three, and then game four feels like it's, it's maybe slipping away from me. And I can already feel myself thinking, right, if I lose game four, and then somehow lose game five, how, how many times am I going to relive that game in my head just over and over and over again? And if you're thinking that while you're playing the game four, well, now you're more likely to lose the game four and then lose the game five. Like you, You've got to find a way to, to get that out of your head. And again, maybe the best way to do that is just to make enough of those mistakes and watch enough of those mistakes being made that it just becomes normalized. But like that's not an encouraging answer in the moment because if it's the first time that's happening, then what, what are you meant to make of that? So no, no, no clean answer, there, I'm afraid. So if I can ask Dom, how does Dom Harvey, PT Top A competitor, Dom Harvey, get that out of their head in that moment? Like what is, right, you're in that position, and I'm sure everyone here and a lot of people listening at home, they've felt that themselves like, oh my God, I just like, I just made this mistake and now it's like going to cost me everything. How is it in that moment you're able to like let that go to play the game in front of you? Like what's your internal process for that? I don't know, really. I'll let you know when I when I figure that out myself. But I guess one uh, tactic I use, I suppose, is to almost treat it like I'm playing one of those tower defense games or something, where I think it's easy if you understand you're playing a match against an, an opponent or a human being to feel like, oh, like they got me or I'm outclassed by them. Or how many times you see this at the local level, right? I'm better than them, so I deserve to win. And therefore, if I mess up, well, now I'm getting angry at myself or angry at them which is like not on at all or whatever it almost is better if you can depersonalize it and yeah i'm just trying to fight off the zombies coming from all directions or whatever and yeah at some point i'm gonna miss one and i'm gonna die but i'm just gonna keep that up for as long as i can and then once i die well i i reload i have a few lives left in my stock or whatever and i'll go again and you just that's the way you've got to treat it ideally and for those longer tournaments the the upside is you actually do have a few losses to give and so yeah, you can afford like one loss to a bad matchup, maybe one loss to some like 
minor judgment call that turns out to go wrong. And then maybe one loss because, yeah, you blew that. That was all, all on you, but you're still live. And so you, you can rebound and, and go from there. I mean, I'm over 0 and 3 or 0 and 4 in SCG camera matches. And two of those, I was okay. up a game because I was a backup feature match. I don't know that that helped me, Dom. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing wrong here. <laughs> uh, I mean, if were those eventually uh, moved to the main table, then is that what you think was a difference maker? Or? Wow. I, I don't know. I was mostly joking. I do. Uh, I actually have a video on one of them, but I, I do. I do think that for me specifically, like there is a level of like caring too much what other people think. Right. And like, you kind of mentioned this in your moment about it. Was it your, your, what did you say Javier? That, that was the one you mentioned. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is like a lot of that for me, um, you know, coming, coming from where I come from in magic, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities for Utah players. And so anytime that I got the opportunity, I, I felt like I, I oversold it to myself a lot. Sort of jumping off this, this is something I noticed about Dom, which is, re- it's all, it's also weird to like think of Dom as my friend and like have him here now, because when I first started, before I played the SCG, I wanted to learn Amulet and we didn't have 80, 80 page primers given out for free written with love and care where I couldn't go to Patreon. And I would watch like Dom and Pulliam and Edgar and Daryl and all these people Dilks play over and over and over again and watch. And one thing that I always really liked about Dom and when I got to know him as well is he was willing to try something and also willing to have the conversation where other people be like, Oh, that's so bad. I, I remember clearly walking to dinner and Dom going something along the lines of like going down to hear an interesting deck and talk about a Jun deck that played Ashok from War of the Spark in the main deck. And then had Croxas before that was normal and would mill itself. And then we went to dinner. We went back to the house and Dom queued it up in a league and was like two games. It was like not good enough, but like you were willing to try it and you weren't willing, like you weren't afraid to sound wrong or dumb or stupid or, you know, like certain people are so afraid to like say the wrong thing and like look silly. And you were just like, well, like, I don't know, this seems like could be good. What do y'all think? I don't have an answer. And I think being like that eternal student of the game is something that I've seen of you where you're like, I don't have the answer. I have my thoughts here. They are, but like, what do you all think? And like that learningness, I think is a, a part of the reason why you're, you're gotten so good and you do so well, but B is like something I think a lot of people can emulate and learn from. I don't know I if you even it, noticed about it yourself. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I try to approach things with that attitude, but also a lot of the time, if, if there's like an easy answer to a question or something, then that question is kind of boring. So why am I still engaging with it? Right. So I think that's why magic has had this enduring appeal. I mean, to all of us and to so many other people, I'm almost 20 years in at this point, right? And a lot of games just don't have that level of depth to them. But magic is constantly presenting you with these new problems, which in theory, some of your prior experience can carry over to, but you also got to figure it out from, from first principles a lot of the time. And those problems aren't easy and you're going to mess them up. And if you can mess them up with a kind of a humble attitude about it and try and learn something from it that's going to be better than just assuming every idea you have is amazing and then getting angry when they don't work because like you're not the best in the world and some of them are going to fail right for what it's worth dom i was just kidding like your answer was super helpful i was just making fun of myself there so each week on the show we invite listeners of the podcast to ask a question on the show and we have an awesome guest like dom uh sorry top eight pro tour competitor dom harvey there it is we we allow listeners to ask questions the first one comes from mikey says what led you to making an 80-page primer on Amulet, and how did you decide to make it free? Well, the, the answer to the first part is I, I wanted to, basically. I feel like if 
you have that level of put into a deck and you feel like you have enough of an understanding of it, it's almost a waste not to share that with people in some capacity. And I think the incentives of a lot of content these days, especially if it's in some kind of content hub or whatever, don't really point towards anything close to that long form. Like you, you maybe will be able to write some primer and like a longer sidewall guide or something about a deck, but that's meant to have some immediate benefit to people. Um, so that if they have a tournament this weekend, they can just print it off and and go to work. And that's fine. I mean, that's that's what most content should be. But I think there there also should be a place for something which is just a love letter to a deck, basically, which for modern, right? Going back to that topic from before, that's a format where you can nurture the same deck over the period of years, as opposed to uh, Pioneer's getting some of that now as as it grows older and so on. But like with standard, for example, right? That is a lot more suited to here's 2,000 words on the deck and a sideboard guide because that deck won't exist in a few months and it has to be tailored for the here and now. Whereas a deck like this, I think there is enough of a history that I want other people to be able to enjoy that. And I think learning that is actually useful in terms of understanding the deck now and how it's changed over time. But also like if for people who appreciate just the obscure stuff about magic the way I do, it's kind of nice to be able to go and just see all of that stuff laid out in one place. So. I wanted that to exist and no one else was going to do it. So I had to do it is, I guess, like one way to answer that. But also, I think there is something to be said for being forced to get all your thoughts about something down on paper and frame it in a way that other people are going to be able to understand helps you to understand it too. uh, Because you maybe have to ask yourself things which like implicitly you were taking your stance on, but you didn't even realize you were doing that. So I I think it's selfishly, it was good for me to do that as well. And then as for making it free, I think that realistically, who is going to read some mammoth document, right, unless they have a reason to. Um, And I want that reason to be just sheer curiosity, as opposed to, I already know that I'm interested. And so you know, if that was paywalled, I think there would be a lot of people who paid good money for it. And I think they would all come away satisfied, like they've got their money's worth. But also, there would be people who if it was free, and they could just wander in and out would be interested. But if they have to cough up the however much I would have charged up front, maybe they wouldn't. And I want those people to be able to wander in and then get ensnared in you know, the, the amulet <laughs> when web. Is the, so. When is the printable version coming out? Like, I, I order it, uh, like, I, I, I like, click a button. It's called a book, Spencer. Yes. It's I, not a... <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, <laughs> and as Stops Manager now, it's coming to Amazon very soon. You'll be able to pick it up. Well, no, that's, that's, that's a PDF, <laughs> though. I want, like, the actual physical copy. Like, with a, like a nice hardback cover yeah yeah yeah, yeah um, like it, you we'll, know we'll, we can we'll commission the art we can you know it's the the printing the smell of the paper right you know it gets a mm. new audience that maybe wasn't as invested in the the online document version yeah i, I wanted to have the same addictive uh, addictive ink that the old booster packs had so you can just like sniff it as you're rifling through and just really inhale all of the the good vibes there but yeah i, I mean coverage actually loved this story about oh this is the guy who wrote a 80 page primer on the deck so they quizzed me about it a bit so i told them yeah it's, it's about 80 pages and it's about thirty-two thousand words and at some point those numbers like match together in their heads so it became an eighty thousand word primer which that that's just a book that's not even like a, a document anymore uh so uh that's i, I don't i don't want people to get their hopes up that it's that long because it, it really isn't uh and I, I really said everything i have to say i think but um <laughs> I have to say the primer is good. I, I read it and 
I, when I was reading it, I was so mad that I was where I was now and not reading it five years ago, where the only way I could practice amulet matches was watching y'all's future matches, pausing and trying to figure out what you were thinking <laughs> and then mm-hmm. unpausing. It was so like, it was, it was, it was I, literally, I understood boomers for a second when they were like, these kids have it too easy. That was just all I could think when I was reading it. <laughs> so yeah, like, but back, it back so in good. my day, yeah, we didn't have the stone tablets being being given to us, you know, but I, I think the other thing too is when you charge for content, there is that pressure for it to have that that relevance in terms of like, where's the cyborg guide, right? Where's the list that I can just grab and go? And one of the things I really tried to stress in that primer was I don't have a list right now. Like if I post a list here, that list is going to be out of date by the time that you read it because I'm trying new things, as you said. And also I think the core Because we're going to end is... up on 61 cards for the Pro Tour. Well, well, that too, of course. And like the, the core of the deck is what it is, but it is also surprisingly flexible in how you build it, how you play it, and so on. And so I can give you what I'm playing in the league right now. Like I, if, if you dear me on Twitter, I'll tell you that. But if I put that in the guide and present that as some official list, then I'm doing a disservice to you and also to the purpose of what the guide is. It's, it's not meant for that. And likewise with the Cyborg Guide, right? If I don't know myself after playing dozens of matches against Murtide, what I want my plan against Motai to be, right? I feel almost dishonest in giving you a list that has these cards in it and I'm telling you what to bring in and out against Motai because I don't know myself yet, for sure. I I don't want to like overstate my level of confidence in how you should build the deck, but I think that kind of giving you the tools to fish, if you like, is a better way to do that than just giving you a list you can grab and go, which, again, that's a valid thing for people to offer and there are people offering that for Amulet, if you like, but... I'm not going to be one of them in the context of that guide. And so I think keeping it free also helps to draw like a clear line in the sand between those different aims. Our next question comes from Adrian. And I think that you finally answered this, but what led you to playing Titan at the Pro Tour? Well, I, like, like I said, I maybe if I'm being honest, I was always going to come back there in the end. I think also, ideally, you want modern to be in a place where your level of experience with a deck, if you have that, is going to outweigh your level of comfort if you jump to the hot new thing. So if I'm playing Amulet at, I'm not going to say close to 100%, but close to that for me, if that's going to be a better choice than playing Scam or Rhinos or something with a two-week lead-in to practice, then I think the format's actually in a good place. So uh, Mason, you will probably recognize the infamous Amulet copypasta about, you know, Amulet has remained tier zero, tier one, or whatever through all these different iterations of modern. And you, you can question whether it has or not. But I think what separates the times when modern has been in a good place and where something has been broken and something really needs to change is you can play whatever your equi- equivalent of Amulet is. And it's it's not good, but maybe it's like tier two or it's, you can tread water with it. Whereas if it is like Hogak modern or Valky modern or whatever, then you you really can't deceive yourself into doing that because you're going to get smushed regardless of what you do about it. And it seemed to me, even though Rados Evoke uh, was a great deck, and even though like I thought Tron would be a good choice or there were some other good choices, it didn't seem like something was so far above the pack that if you don't play this, you're just making a fundamental mistake. And so given that, I could play the deck that I wanted to play 
which I thought also, you know, made good use of the ring and so on. And given that I accidentally scammed a bunch of people into playing Tron, like would also be a good choice against them when I played them. So that, that was not part of the plan, but it, it worked out uh, perfectly. But yeah, I, um, I would love for you to tell that story on here real quick, by the way, about how you, it, let's let's be honest. Everyone calls it Handshake Tron. I call it Harvey Tron for now on. That's where I'm at. <laughs> All right. So can you tell that really quick? Okay. So I, I didn't realize this myself until... I got to the PT and heard this like through the grapevine third hand. But uh, so during testing, I was pretty dismissive of when people would say, we, we got to make sure we don't get this published. Or if you're four in a league, you got to drop so that it doesn't get get in the five zero deck or some. And I was saying, well, okay, first of all, we're not playing anything that's that adventurous or outrageous that people have to sit up and take notice. And also, I, I would like to think that we're at the point where uh, you know, our, our reputations, our, our usernames demand that attention regardless of what we're playing. We aren't there yet. So we, I, we don't have to worry about that. The way that, you know, if, if Nathan's story gets published or something, like you're going to pay attention to it. And so I'm just playing a build of Tron in a league. And it's, it's a bit of a weird build, but it's, you know, I, I think how I would build it if I end up uh, playing it. And I play against Scam or something, I beat Scam, play against Rhinos, beat Rhinos, play against something else, whatever, lose to something that I forget at some point. What I didn't realize was that Rhinos player was Maddie Charisma of Team Handshake on an alternate account in a league, like in a Discord call. Uh, and so that that beating that I inflicted upon the the humble rhinoceros was was so so savage that apparently uh, they were less confident in just Rhinos as a choice and started really focusing their attention on Tron. And I'm not going to claim credit for all of that. Like it's they were going to test Tron, right? And they were going to build it in a certain way and going to reach a lot of the same conclusions like the the sagas that were in my list they took notice of and then uh, adopted themselves and so i when i was in the doldrums at o2 having heard the story i, I consoled myself with the thought that at least i'm going to have some impact on this tournament even if it's not the one i wanted uh, and then it turns out i got to run it up and beat javier on that list in top eight en route to uh you know my eventual loss in the semi so that, that was a nice book into that story arc too you actually kind of set yourself up for success by playing in the leagues on your main account. You you put them in a position to knock them down at the Pro Tour. So what I'm hearing is maybe Nathan needs to play with the deck that he's uh, good against his main deck. You know, If he's going to play Amulet or whatever, he needs to be playing Tron in leagues. That way people copy him. I'm learning a lot here. I'm taking, I, notes. I'm taking I, notes. I like that we're putting yeah. our, our previous guest against our current guest in a battle of wits unlike mm-hmm. any other in history. Mm-hmm. That's... Yeah, that's really the, the takeaway on how to improve in this episode is these elaborate mind games in the leagues. You know, just just uh, you gotta you gotta figure out the long con and then execute it to perfection. Uh, yeah, if you're not willing to, if you're not willing to trophy with the worst deck possible, or maybe even the best deck possible, so you can play your rogue choice at the Pro Tour. I mean, are you really committed to trying to win the Pro Tour? It's, if you don't love it in my loot tree, you can't have me in my Yorion. You know? What? Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it needed all the help it could get for this PT, okay? I, I had to do to, to resort to drastic measures. Dom, our next question comes from Donnie, and he wants to know, what is the most enjoyable thing about playing Amulet, and what is the least enjoyable thing? Well, m- most enjoyable is it's kind of a split between the games where you just turn two people, or you have the nut draw, and you get reminded part, you know, why you chose the deck in the first place. You get that, that dopamine rush. But then it's also the games where nothing goes according to plan, and you have to figure out how to like survive by the skin of your teeth while setting yourself up for you know to have some outs to win the game two or three turns from now. And it's like that that puzzle quality that keeps the deck engaging after so many years. Where like I, I played Tron before, I was this close to playing it again, but 
John doesn't engage me and inspire me the way that Amulet still does, because for the most part, the games of Tron are pretty straightforward. You know, like you know what the plan is, even if you have to get there through kind of a meandering route sometimes. Whereas with Amulet, it's not even clear what the route is a lot of the time. And you you have to figure that out. Yeah, that, that combination of like sheer raw power, but also this puzzle that renews itself time after time. It's the same way that, you know, I play Magic after so many years because each new format or each new you know, draft or whatever, it is a new puzzle to confront. And Amulet keeps presenting you with those new puzzles where I, I had some spots in the PT where it's like, yeah, I'm sure I encountered this exact spot like five years ago or something. And I wish I could remember it more vividly now, but I, I've got to solve this puzzle again. And the fact that a deck can actually do that is pretty impressive, just given how how rare that is in relative terms. Well, kind, of, kind of last question from patrons, and then I actually I actually have a question for you. What version of Tron would you recommend for upcoming RCQs? This one is funny because when I was talking to the handshake guys and like learning the law on how I accidentally scammed some of them, I, I was trying to puzzle out. It's like, okay, so once half of your team logged on to Tron, how many of you attempted to like add another Conlib Raider to your deck or add another way to just kibble your teammates and get a little bit of an edge uh, in the mirror? And the, the trouble is, once they, because A, they're the best players in the tournament for the most part, and B, they had a good list and you know, they figured limited out and so on. Once they were deep in the tournament, they were actually at a disadvantage against a more conventional Tron list in the hands of you know Calcano, who is my teammate for the event and so on, because... Yeah, if someone shows up with just good old-fashioned big boy car, like, yeah, they're going to have an edge in the mirror and so on. So it's it's a tricky problem because if you think you've reached the right conclusion about this deck and you think other people are going to reach that too, and it's it's not a hard one to reach, right? They're just going to net deck the list that the best players did well within the tournament. Well, then do you go to the next level and maybe give up some equity elsewhere just to get an edge in the mirror, which is kind of hard to do otherwise, right? The Tron mirror famously is... I guess, practice your die rolls or something. But I, I guess, I think the hands, the handshake list is the most stable and the best at what it does. But if you have a hard read on what other people are going to be doing, then yeah, maybe you, you play like it's 2019 or something and go back to the last PT Barcelona and kind of do what those guys were trying to do, where it was just more of a all-out race to getting Tron on turn three and having the payoff. Uh, whereas if it's going to be a bunch of like Ragavan decks and four-color decks and control decks based around the run ring then yeah you can take it slow you can assemble tron on turn four and you want a list which can play a, a more stable game and isn't going to multi four in search of you know uh tron on three every single time i love it my question for you dom we actually talked about this i don't know if it was last week or the week before i talked about this with mason i've done coverage uh, commentary for for a lot of modern tournaments and i actually find covering Amulet to be one of the hardest decks to cover because for me it's really hard to do play-by-play or even do color without talking about like what are the lines available throughout the next turns and how do the next turns play out whereas it makes you either make players look bad if they miss lethal multiple times or if they they take a different line that they go for like let's say for example that they go for a, a bunch of titan after titan turns rather than, you know, presenting lethal in certain spots. How would you recommend players, is there like an order of operations for the deck, or is there something that I, as somebody that, you know, does coverage for local RCQs and local 1Ks, can try and help players look good while playing what is a really difficult deck? 
It is a really interesting problem for coverage too, I think, because first of all, you as the person who's in there as the authority figure, you have to know what's going on and be confident that you know what's going on. And then you have to figure out if the player in the seat is on the same page, they know what they're doing and what their goal is and are they going to try and get there in the same way as as you expect. Uh, And then presenting that to an audience who may not have the faintest clue what's going on uh, in a way that's accessible to them. Like all of that is very difficult. And doing that all at once, there are some trade offs there. It's not easy to do all of it at once. Uh, so that it, it's a tough one. And in the past, I think, like when KCI was popular, for example, this was a deck that had this mystique as being is very complicated and exploits a lot of these rules loopholes. And uh, it's this kind of mad scientist deck, which uh, is hard to follow. And I think to some extent, if you lean into that too hard, it becomes this self fulfilling prophecy where if every time KCI is on camera, you build it up as, oh, this is impossible to understand. Who knows what canister is going to do next? Then no one's going to know what canister is going to do next because it's your job to tell them and you're not doing that. So I I think one answer would be lay it out in broad terms. Like, okay, is the goal here to survive the turn? Is the goal here to find lethal, right? And that might be easier to suss out than exactly how you get to either one of those conclusions. And then if the player does something else, Well, then you set that up as, well, okay, they think they can actually convert on a win this turn. What needs to happen for them to do that, right? Does this have to be a drier turn? Do the quick mass in your head. Is the Titan going to get there by itself? Does it need a friend along with it? If it's the Titan going solo, well, now is removal on the table, right? If there's a solitude waiting in the wings, is that going to mess up everything? Uh, So I think setting it up in broad terms I think it's probably a better approach than trying to lay out the intricacies of, well, if they make this much mana and then they go through Talaria West and they transmit for this, I, I think getting deep in the weeds doesn't really benefit anyone necessarily. Once they are locking in on a line and actually doing that, then the play-by-play can step in and actually run through the motions there. But that, that's why it's important actually for the play-by-play to know that and to know where this is going because if it is just listing the things that are happening on the screen, well, then that's going to be hard to follow itself you need someone who has a foresight to know where this is going to guide them in that direction. But I think for the modern PT, right, that, that's a, a question which I'd like to think coverage was asking themselves is when you have weird situations like this, how do you handle those? As opposed to if it's a turn one fury pain death line, we've seen that before, we're going to see it again. It's also pretty simple to follow. Whereas my matches uh, on, on camera kind of ran the gamut there. So there was one game where I had two Amrits in play and just no lands for about three turns. And I knew on that last turn, if I drew the bounce land, I was going to win the game on the spot. Uh, and if I didn't, I was going to die. Like the stakes were pretty clear to me. They probably weren't clear to the audience and maybe not even clear to the people in the booth. And so them figuring out that puzzle together in an entertaining way was kind of crucial to that game looking as good as it did when I actually did draw the bounce land and was able to pop off and, and go through the motions, right? And then game three of that match, was one of those games where, well, I, I don't have some impressive amulet draw. I, I have to like get scrappy with my Titan, and I, I have to find these specific lands to survive, and then next turn, if I draw this, and I can do this, and that's uh, an issue for coverage too, right? Like If you don't know how it's possible for me to stay alive, then you're as, as lost as everyone else, and, and people can tell that you're as lost as everyone else. So it's not easy. And I, I probably made coverage's life you, a lot harder in the you process. Val- but. You validated me just now, though. It is, it is one of my least favorite decks to cover, and it's because I'm both afraid of speaking out of turn and then also afraid of hurting 
the person on coverage, right? And like it, it's it's so funny because you know people have their opinions about Tron and things like that, but like even even on coverage, one of the best moments on coverage was was Christian finding a line that coverage did not see, right? And so mm-hmm. it makes you like when you're watching Magic coverage, you know, make sure that you're watching to learn, make sure that you're watching to improve rather than watching to be right. Um, I think it's yeah. I, I mean. As someone who, like, I've had my fair share of features before, I can take it now, right? If someone in the booth is doubting what I'm doing or whatever, either I think they're right and I'm going to doubt myself anyway and be kicking myself, or I think they're wrong and I hope they don't get it wrong next time, but but whatever. Whereas, you know, if someone is in their first feature match at an open or something, as Cedric or a- anyone who has, has been there will tell you, like, the first thing that people do once they get home from from a tournament where they've been on camera is they go and watch their match on camera and if what they hear is that person talking about how stupid they are for missing this obvious thing well that that actually could like really tarnish their their experience so i guess knowing who you're talking about is is the first thing so if it's a regular at the store who is like talking a big game or is is seen as one of the best players in the store then you can maybe go out on a limb more about what they're doing and why they're doing it and if you get it wrong so be it whereas if it's like an up-and-comer who is just breaking through for the first time then you want to make sure that you're i guess more more charitable with them if they end up making a mistake because you know they're, they're going to be kicking themselves too and you don't want to be adding fuel to that fire we had one last question for you dom and this one is really targeted towards the modern format so the time of this recording it's the day of the modern bnr but really the day of the modern unban yes. and i'm curious sort of what your thoughts are on preordain and sort of everything going on and what your thoughts on the modern format hit us because you're kind of a modern expert, you know, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the show, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. It's exciting. I, I think if you'd asked me a few months ago, I'd have said, I, I don't know, this might be a little bit too dangerous, but I think it's it's a risk worth taking at a time where a lot of people are calling for bans. And if if it's not banned, you kind of, you need some, something to, to toss to the crowd, right? So exciting unbans and maybe one way to do that. And I think this is an exciting unban. And the people who are saying, oh, is this really that much better than Serum Vigil or something? Yes. Yes, it is. Let me tell you. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's exciting. And I don't know exactly who is going to benefit most yet. Is it just going to be the Murtai decks who really wanted a sorcery for their Delirium cards now have a good sorcery and, and don't have to resort to Serum Visions? Or is there some blue combo deck which maybe wasn't quite consistent enough before but now can actually find its pieces enough to, to make that worthwhile? And I think that actually the logic that was given for the Legacy half maybe applies more to the modern half where all of the, the interactive stuff in the format has uh, been raised up quite a few notches by Modern Horizons, Modern Horizons 2, and it would be nice if the, the combo decks actually had something to match that. And so, you know, the, that logic was used for the Mines Desire Unbanned and Legacy. I think, if anything, it might apply just as much, if not more, to the Preordain ban. If, if there is some combo deck that actually gets to compete now because of that, I think that's a good thing. Whereas there have been times where if you would let Preordain loose on the format, I don't, I don't think anything good would have happened. So it's I'm not quite sure what to expect yet, but I'm excited. I, I almost wish that some other stuff had come off along with it just to liven things up even more. But I think... It was maybe a matter of time, I, I think, and this is a good time for it. And thank God it's ponder and not uh, thank God it's preordained and not ponder. Excuse me, because I I don't think you can do both. And if you're going to do one, ponder is just uh, it's such a nightmare of shuffling and and searching. It's it's awful. Whereas preordained is a fun card to play, fun card to watch. I'm glad it's that, and hopefully other people get to have fun with it too. 
Yeah, yeah, the ponder for coverage, right? Just like, no, I've lost too much time to struggling. Horrible. I can't I can't lose any more of my life to pondering. It's legacy's dead. Let ponder go with it. <laughs> I want to love legacy so much, but if you go back and watch a lot of uh old legacy feature matches or something, it's impossible to follow because half of the game is happening off screen because one player is looking at three cards and then shuffling and then they're casting a brainstorm and putting some cards back and hopefully it's the right number of cards because if it isn't, then it's going to be a massive uh, cluster, you know what. You heard and it here first. The same when... legacy is arena, uh, being able to see all the cards that everybody has. Sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Fine. But yeah, even when like the stuff is being done promptly and efficiently, so much of it is just off screen and it's and there's so much shuffling involved that it's, it's just impossible to watch so uh, for that if no other reason i think you know uh, ponder is dead long live preordain and hopefully uh, we all get to learn that lesson well don thank you so much speaking of things that are fun to watch you know things that are fun to consume i'd like to give you a moment to talk about dominaria's judgment yeah i mean it's it, it's a focus on constructed magic it tries to be analytical um i mean we joke around and we, we have fun with it but it, it's it's trying to unpack a lot of the detail there and trying to go in depth on specific topics or debates or uh, some of the history there like ari is an old man now and so am i so we like to you know reminisce about not just the good old days but also the mistakes from formats past sets in the past or whatever that have some relevance to today uh, and try to bring people something that they can enjoy listening to uh even if it's maybe you know more dry or more kind of narrow and specific than uh, some of the other content out there thank you so much for your time dom talk to me about the temple garden and the overground tomb behind you like how how did you come up with the uh the background here so i started playing with uh betrayers of kamigawa so early 2005 and so my first set uh, as a newbie was saviors of kamigawa you're one of the worst sets in the entire history of magic so once i survived that i, I knew i was in for life and luckily we emerged from the desert intact and the first block after Kamigawa was the original Ravnica. So that set worked for me the way that it did for so many others, but specifically the art on the Shocklands. Like I, when I, I went on the official website, which back in the day was this, you know, grainy mess of a, you know, HTML mid-2000s. Uh, they, they were trying their best, but it was, it was a little suspect sometimes. But look, going onto that page and just seeing the art on Temple Garden in high definition, that's when I knew I was really in for life. And there have been other games that have come, like other competitors to Magic or clones of Magic, arguably, or other games in that space, which they're good for what they are, and they actually don't have a lot of the, the rules baggage or, or so on that Magic has acquired over the years, but they also don't have a lot of the aesthetic stuff that really does matter to me. So, you know, other games don't have that right there. Uh, this one does, and so, you know, I, I have that on my wall, and it's something that I love about Magic in a way that, you know, I... I play other games, I dabble in other games, but they don't they don't resonate in that way. And so it's I like looking at it, but it's also just a good reminder of why I'm still here after after so long now. I love that. I just want to say that I am a personally for the listeners out there who don't really know much about Dominary's Judgment, it is probably the number one podcast when it comes to modern and has been for about two years. Like the modern format as a whole, it is so unsurprising to me, Dom, that you were able to take amulet i mean not only because you're a great amulet player but also that in the realm of kind of the forgotten art of being the week to week i love my deck gamer that you of all people with the amount of time you've put into understanding the format its nuances so forth all of which are really well detailed on that show that you were able to put together an amulet list that was prepared for this kind of new world of modern 
um, as we were seeing it unfold for that Pro Tour and, uh, and have a build that was able to be as successful as you were. So again, hats off to you and definitely listeners, go check out Domino's Judgment. You will learn a ton. Um, <laughs> there's still tons of backlog episodes where I'll go back and listen and be like, oh yeah, like now the whole format makes a little bit more sense to me um, in terms of what's going on because you do, you two do a really good job with it. So I appreciate that. And we try to, if it's a slow news week or something, broaden our focus a bit. So we had an episode on vintage recently, which was fun to us to do. When else do you get a chance to talk about vintage? But also for the people out there, who else is going to tell you about vintage, right? So it's, I, I'd like to think there's a handful of people out there for whom like that is the episode that they've been waiting for however long. And, you know, there, there'll be more stuff like that. We're trying to broaden our focus a bit to your know, interviews with other players and just uh, other looks at magic history and so on, because there is so much there to be unlocked, right? And so we're just off in our corner doing our own thing. But e- even in you know, a podcast market that is so saturated and so so full of, of people, I'd like to think that we can all just like play nice, I guess. And uh, you guys are doing your thing, we're doing our thing. That's going to overlap a bit. But when it does, that's hopefully a source for like collaboration and, and uh, you know, people, each other's fan bases discovering each other as opposed to anything else. So um, yeah, I mean, a- as a lover of magic, I like to think that I can do justice by it and i yeah that's that's one way i'm trying to do that i echo what abe said and then i i think we've said everything and we've sang our praises i'll say this i was helping my mom move on saturday and i was like uh like lifting all these heavy book boxes and i kept checking in i checked in right as you were winning your round 13 and i thought holy dom's around away i'm pretty sure from top eighting and if he top eights this so much tron this this dude's gonna be great as long as he's running to scam or whatever. Like I, I'm not gonna be surprised because if you look at the results, Dom really is one of the people that has done consistently super well over modern in this era where we haven't had as much spotlight on modern. If you like follow the man trader stuff or look at challenges and other things, Dom's just consistently in there. So it's not a surprise, especially when I learned you had like three out your second draft. I'm like, oh well, it's just going great or whatever. And it was great to see you sort of crush it and then you know, unfortunately losing the top four, but it was great to just see you do your thing and sort of I would argue get rewarded for putting time and effort into the game. And that's the thing I think everyone thinks about. And I think you're a great content creator, a better person and, you know, a slightly worse player than you are a person, but you're such a good person. That's some high praise Dom. So <laughs> pro to our topic, consider Dom Harvey. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Uh, bigger number, better person. And I, I try to, to live by that maxim. Exactly. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I'd like to give a special shout out to front of the show. Um, and somebody that means a lot to me personally, Alexander Hain, for making this podcast possible. Thank you so much for, <laughs> you know, not. Yeah, not- I, I want to thank him too, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do have an episode with Hain. If you want to go back and check it out, Hain talked about how to deal with tilt. I think that was something he did uh, this past weekend as well. And <laughs> it's an important part. We bring up tilt a lot in Magic. Sometimes you get some of those scoops. I don't think that's what the episode was about for what it's No, I think, I think it was. I think you should go back and listen to it. Oh, well, I mean, I, I was like really immune from tilt over the course of the weekend because after I got off to such a terrible start and had this just uh, cheated death to not open my pod, I. I was in this mindset where like anything good that happens from now on is just a free roll, right? Like if if I can somehow run this up into re-qualifying, like that, that's a stretch goal at this point. But if it happens, great. And if not, well, whatever. And so I almost I'm not gonna say people should start off their tournaments in the worst way possible, but if that happens, it, it can become something that is like weirdly liberating. And you just no expectations now, just play your play your matches and uh, see what happens. For what it's worth, I think Alex qualified for worlds. I think he's happy with his result, but it was it was a uh, 
it was so funny to watch live with my friends. I was like, you know, as a friend of Alex that you know cares deeply, I just I was rooting for him so hard. And then I didn't even know what the result meant, Dom. I was like, you know, because because you're friends <laughs> with my friends, so like you know that happens. I was like, what does this mean? Is he is 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 Alex locked for top eight anyway? It turns out no. That my friend's friend is locked for top eight, and uh, and now gets to to have the run of the lifetime. Well, I, yeah. I I didn't know what it meant at the time either, so I I had to be caught up on on what was happening around me. But uh, I, I had told my friends and a bunch of other people I I, I got ninth, right? Because that's what I assumed I was locked for. Uh, I didn't want them to like learn the bad news uh, or, or wait for that for too long. Uh, from my perspective, ninth was I mean I'd made my peace with that. It's a great finish after what I thought was a terrible start, uh, and then I had to be informed by coverage and by my friends that like no 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 your, your weekend's not over yet let's not uh <laughs> let's not uh close this this book too soon and, and then yeah that was the the final twist and a very very strange weekend anything you want to say before we let you go dom no i'm good uh, thanks for having me on i uh just got finished podcasting with ari earlier so after that uh rapid turn around to this i, I don't know how coherent i am still but hopefully was able to uh, deliver some Pulse of wisdom or pulse of something uh, for the for the people out there. And you crushed it. Uh, for those listening, like I think that you've probably listened to Dom's judgment before this show because I think it'll probably come up first. But uh, if not, you know, take take a moment. Uh, you know, don't change the podcast on your drive uh, unless you're, you're pulled over at a stoplight. But you know, go to go take a listen. And thank you so much, Dom, for coming on. Wow, that was such a fun thing to do with Dom. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, don't forget to hit the, the Patreon Discord. That's for patrons of $5 or more. You can join the public Discord. We have fantasy football for the He's Game Media Discord going on. Uh, we've also got uh, monthly uh, Smash Nights if you want to play Smash. Uh, I think one of our patrons said that we are in the golden age of fighting games uh, on Twitter this week. So if you're interested in learning Smash, you got to switch. You, you want to you wanna learn that like the public discord is a place to do that uh we talk about magic we talk about uh games anime anime mason you can also leave a comment on the youtube channel we've got a lot of comments this week on our shorts we're doing more shorts so like uh, other people can find us it's really cool to see the interaction on there you can also follow us on twitter at ccmtg or on x i guess i should say and then you can uh, check out Sam's podcast, uh, Drafting Archetypes, every week on the network. And like, sub, review, and comment is the best way to support the show. Where can people find you, Abe? Uh, people can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. It's still twitter.com, even though their brand is X. Weird, but, you know. If, find me. if you put in x.com, it does bring up twitter.com. It's twitter.com. I have, a, I have a bookmark on my desktop that says Twitter, and when I click it, it goes to someone says twitter.com. So as far as I know, it's still Twitter. But yeah, you can find me there. You can DM me for for coaching. I'm doing a little bit less now. Probably only have like one or two slots available. But, um, you know, let me know for that. And then, yeah. Otherwise, just giving my thoughts to the universe until that website shuts itself down. Uh, how about you, Mason? You can find me over at twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. You can find me each and every week at Card Kingdom, writing about something this week. I wrote about the BNR. You can find me at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. And you can find me, like I mentioned before, at the Apex event in Caldwell, Ohio. And then I'm going to the Durham Extra Life Tournament next weekend, which would be August the 18th. So that's going to be really fun. 
And Spencer, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm not on social media right now. You know, follow the podcast to yeah, interact with me. Like I'm, I'm probably the one that's that's tweeting from there or whatever. Um, but uh, after this contract does up with my new job, I plan on streaming again at the Heezy Media Twitch channel as well as making videos on the YouTube channel. Um, so you know, just follow the podcast and the content that you love, and I'm sure that you can interact with me. Yeah, that's gonna do it for this week's episode. Mason, we love you, man. I hope that whatever's happening with your phone is really great. I'm seeing everybody next week with another episode of Constructed Television.